Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we bring in scholars, policymakers, and business executives to talk about world today. And our guest today is Mr. Blair Efron. He is a trustee at Princeton University, but also the co-founder of Centerview Partners, one of the most uh, leading investment banking and advisory firms out, out there on the, in the Wall Street and probably in the world as well. So such an honor to have you in the studio. Tiger, today. thanks for having me in. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I thought that because we're just a bunch of undergrads uh, asking you questions humbly and genuinely, we probably don't want to ask you some of the questions that you already answered on CNBC already. So what, why don't we just start uh, from just the most broadest overview uh, of your work at Centerview. Uh, what do you think investment banking work is really about? And, and what so fascinating that, that attracts you to do it? Right. I think investment banking is actually like doing crossword puzzles every day, meaning when done right, it should challenge you intellectually. It should make you uh, creative in terms of how you apply problem solving to numbers, how you apply problem solving to strategic and corporate issues that uh, affect every company of any size around the, around the world. And if you're doing investment banking right, it's not actually about doing transactions. Sure, that's a part of it. But what you really want to do is uh, get close to companies so you can be a trusted advisor consigliere. Got you. I want to begin our conversation just by going all the way back to the time when you were undergrad in Princeton back in Good. the 80s. So, so what did you take away from your Princeton education? What made you decide to pursue a career in, in finance in general? Yeah. Great. So what I took away from education, real simple. <laughs> Study what you're interested in and where you really have a passion. So I was a, a history major with a specialization in medieval history. Hard to find a connection from medieval history to banking. My point is that should not be relevant. You should build... Uh, skill sets in terms of how to think, how to analyze, uh, how to look at any problem critically. That's what I learned at Princeton. I learned how to really open my mind up. I came in thinking I would be headed towards sciences, and I left uh, thinking about journalism, in fact, thought about teaching. And I kind of landed on banking, uh, like most people in careers, circuitously. I decided I probably wasn't going to be a very good uh, Professor, and after seeing the professors at Princeton, I said, okay, well, that's not going to necessarily work for me. Yeah. Uh, I did some journalism here. I did a little journalism right out of school and then uh, went to business school, worked in banking for the summer and found out that it was actually much different than my going in perception. It really was about helping companies, uh, senior leaders in business solve problems. Got you. And, and you started your career at Dylan Reed. That's right. I had a very successful tenure at the firm and eventually transitioned to a position at, at UBS. So uh, at what point did you know that you wanted to start Synergy? Because it wasn't until like over 20 years later of your career that you sure, actually decided sure. to. So Tiger, I think it's an interesting question generally about entrepreneurialism. I, I have always thought, and I am proven wrong on this all the time when I see all the great things being done by people in their 20s, uh, but I always thought Doing something and building something would be incredibly rewarding, but that building a skill set, an expertise, a reputation in what you were doing would probably set you on a better course uh, to then think about building a business. I've always come to a view, had a view, and certainly have come to it with Centerview that most really good entrepreneurs actually have a lower risk reward tolerance than people think. By the time I started Centerview, I had a pretty good sense it was going to at least work modestly well. Did I know how it would work? Of course not. But did I think that it probably... It's not going to let you sleep on the... Jumping off a cliff? Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, but I really wanted to be in a business 
expand my horizons, I get very antsy quickly. And if you have, you're somebody who likes to do a lot of things all the time, you want to have a very full plate. And I said, you know what? It might be fun and interesting to take my client work and then really start to mentor and train others so they could do client work. And that becomes the basis of a center view. And it's been an absolute joy to bring people on and train them in the skills of uh, how to be talented business people, not just bankers. And that was always really a part of my thinking. I think a lot of bankers would say they love to have a lot on their plate. They'd love to help on, help businesses. But I don't think the investment banking world is particularly known as being entrepreneurial in the sense. You're absolutely correct. You're very unique in the sense that you, you created something on your own, whereas most investment bankers would love to stay in a more right. So when I, that's a great question. When I actually decided to do this, most of my industry thought I was kind of nuts. They were probably right. Why would you leave something when you are doing it well? Uh, I had a contrarian view. The time to actually leave is when you are doing well, if you have that itch, if you have that urge. And um, I do think careers as you move through the years, through the decades, should start broadly in your 20s, build a skill set, narrow kind of in your 30s into your early 40s, become an expert in something, and then broaden again. And if you were somebody who wants to work into their 70s and 80s, uh, I wouldn't mind that. You want to spend the last several decades of your career having as broad a platform as possible. The idea of, therefore, building something satisfies that. So would you, would you say that you encourage young people to start at a more bigger, established platform versus... On their own? On their own, something like that? I would tell you I have been proven wrong by seeing so many phenomenal businesses by people who are not yet 30, where I go, wow, how did you do that? All that said, I do think developing skill sets does matter. How do you manage a business? How do you manage people? Uh, I see a lot of great business plans, but the ability to actually execute the business plan and build it requires a, a certain level of experience. So I would certainly say that somebody who wanted to do something on their own or do something with a small group of people, more entrepreneurial, make sure you have a broad enough skill set that you maximize the chances of doing well. And I'd also say this. I don't – I was always a big believer of the five-year plan, the old Soviet Union five-year plan. That's probably about it. Um, yeah, but I'm I from China, so I – Well, I understood <laughs> the, the idea that you would say, what do I want to accomplish in each five-year period? Yeah. I think the first five-year period uh, – Learning skills that are transferable to matter what you want to do, no matter what industry you go into, for-profit, non-profit, important. And you also have to be nimble enough to let your uh, aspirations change as you move forward. I didn't know I wanted to start a bank in my 30s. But as I moved forward and I thought about the next X years, it started to percolate. And I'm a big believer in letting ideas percolate and letting them percolate over time. Got you. Uh, I, I want to just shift a little bit to the, the firm itself, Centerview. Right. So Centerview has around 50 partners and 300 professionals across five cities in the world. Uh, I think it's very hard for people just outside the finance industry to imagine that a small boutique advisory firm would have more insights on certain industries than a big giant like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. So I want to ask you, like, how has Centerview managed to so successfully compete against those giants. Sure. Yeah. So first of all, I'm a big believer that professionals need to have a broad skill set. What I find with big institutions today is they want you to be very narrow and deep. 
that can be something that's great or it could be something that makes you irrelevant. If you're working as the expert in coal and there's only a couple of coal companies, you're not going to be uh, having a longer career. The idea that you would train people to be nimble enough to think across many industries, many kind of transactions, many kind of problems, I think is, when all said, is what a CEO, is what a board of directors wants to see. They want someone with judgment and experience who has seen a lot. So I think the idea of an independent firm like Centerview is very much for a different industry than the big firms. The big firms are great, but they operate in a different industry. They operate in an area where the banker is supposed to deliver uh, product services. And I kind of look at a center view as we want to deliver intellectual capital. And if you do that, um, companies want to be around you. Yeah, because I remember you mentioning that 80% of the time spent at center view is actually just on the advising component rather than on processing the transactions. And We like transactions, but we also, that's a part, we like them when they make sense for the company and right. they make sense for the client. And um, at Centerview, we believe in going very deeply across a client's problems, becoming the real thought partner, so that when there's something more transactionally to be done, you have a good perspective as to, frankly, whether it makes sense to do it, and if so, on what basis. What do you think is the more challenging part? Is it advising or the, or the transaction, do you think? I think the advising. It's very easy for any of us to take a homework assignment and go do it. If your professor says, I don't really know where I want this class to go, but I kind of know where it ought to end up. You guys figure it out and come back to me. That's the non-transactional piece. That's the idea that says, how do I help a company? How do I help, help a management team? Where the issue, the problem is frankly much more amorphous. How do I do it proactively? How do I uh, build trust in them? And uh, you're in many ways forced to create your own path. Transactions, you don't have to do that. There's a point A in the beginning and a point B at the end. Uh, you found a center of you not really long before the financial crisis hit. I guess that's right. Good timing. <laughs> so so I, I want to ask you like, what kind of challenges you, you faced back then and what kind of lessons you, you sort of took away from that in terms of uh, after when you lead the firm uh, going forward. Sure. Yeah. So I, I founded it with my partner at a time when we saw the financial services industry changing a lot. We saw financial capital being much more paramount, much more important than intellectual capital. And we said, that's probably an interesting opportunity. Uh, we started in 06. The financial crisis is two years later. For us, actually, it was the best thing that could have happened. Why? Because one, the set of issues, problems, complications facing all companies was obviously dramatic. So the need for experienced partners, well, the more apparent. And two, we were able to recruit a lot of incredibly talented people who realized that the safety of a big firm obviously wasn't cracked up to be what, what they thought. And uh, a lot of people were willing to say, you know what, this is probably a good time for me to take advantage of a crisis, i.e., I've had this steady job, let me try this. And, uh, you know, we, but anything, I'll say this, Tiger, it all looks really strategic in hindsight. As you're building any business, what you're really trying to do is five or six great things a year, which are pretty tactical. And if you're maniacal in accomplishing those, and you do that five years, let's say, well, that's 30 great things. You then it looks a new level. Well, yeah. then it looks strategic. Totally makes sense, yeah. I, I really like how Centerview is very different from other investment banking in the sense that you're really talking about 
the advising component, the problem solving component, the building relationships. Uh, and my friend Charlie and I were actually just talking about this. So uh, Indra Nui, the, the CEO of Pepsi, and she, she, so she said that her relationship with Blair Efron has always been stronger than her relationship with any bank out there. So uh, I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on how do we pass down this kind of relationship building ability uh, to more junior level bankers? I mean, I, 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 as, as I imagine, Synergy passes down to Sure. I, I, I think you should, if we could take that question and expand it beyond banking. How do you pass skill sets in any organization, irrespective of industry, irrespective of size, from one group of uh, colleagues down to the next? It's done by role modeling. It's done by setting good examples. It's done by prioritizing what's important and um, building a DNA. So when younger people come into any organization and they see the leaders of that organization focusing on collaboration, focusing on integrity, focusing on uh, uh, the three or four priorities that are, that are obvious to everyone within the organization, it starts to become a part of your DNA. And you pass it on. And I think smart, talented people generally are good learners through osmosis. And part of our goal is to mentor formally, but also mentor informally, just by having people exposed uh, to a lot of situations. And I'm a big believer, big believer in throwing talented people in the deep end of the pool, making them do things that they didn't think they could do, and finding almost always they rise to the occasion, and they end up making careers for themselves that are several years ahead of many of their counterparts at other organizations. No, that, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, I guess we were just talking about the entrepreneurial sphere within the banking world and, and training people. Uh, do you think there, are, there will be more boutique advisory firms that are emerging uh, that have deeper expertise in very niche sub-verticals than many of the bulge bracket banks uh, and, and they will gradually take over some of the businesses? Because I guess we're kind of seeing this uh, trend of decentralization in many sort of fields. I mean, people are saying, yeah, like Google and Facebook and those tech giants will always be powerful, but we're just seeing a sort of vibrant startup scene that do really well in sub-verticals. Uh, do you think that sure. will sort of be the same for finance? So I think it's already happened. Um, the share of business generally that goes to smaller firms has been on the uptick each year. And uh, if you look at the standard metrics, league tables, for example, half the top 10 spots are filled with independent firms. I think the key is that you have enough scale and enough resource to service problems globally uh, and that you're actually broad enough in your offering. I'm not sure in any business that going too narrow is a good recipe for long-term success. It may be a way to, in any business, uh, do well for a period, but every business depends on growth. You need to grow to provide opportunities for your people, and the way to do that is to figure out other areas within your uh, business community, your area of expertise, where you can apply your skill sets. So as Centerview expands itself to wider coverage, as you recruit more talents and, and grow bigger, do you have plans in terms of make growing Centerview bigger or going public, or do you kind of want to keep the size? Well, I, I, I don't this know. I, first of all, I don't think any size is the way I think about it. And I would never tell a client, you make $1 earnings, you should make $1 earnings every year and be happy, as opposed to figure out how you grow the dollar, how you create more opportunity, how you create more opportunity for your colleagues and employees, more opportunity for all the stakeholders invested and involved with your business. So uh, I think Centerview, like any other business that is careful, will want to grow. We will grow. 
but we'll do it prudently. We'll do it uh, with discipline. And you don't want to grow just for the sake of growing. You want to grow well. Uh, and I do think that's important. And it lends a certain, not only has it got opportunity to your people, but it lends a certain excitement to everybody who's with you. They want to be part of something growing. In terms of where Center View is in five years, that uh, open question. And I think we're pretty good about being nimble enough to uh, try to lead what that five-year view ought to look like rather than react. So we see plenty of opportunities in ancillary-related areas to our business today that we'd like to think more seriously about. To- totally makes sense. Uh, and, and just regarding- Or not, ask me five years. <laughs> so in terms of leading that trend, leading that five-year tr- uh, trend, uh, do you have any predictions regarding where finance or just investment banking is kind of heading into the future? Because I guess there's a lot of buzz about you know fintech or where uh, internet finance or cryptocurrency, uh, and, and I guess we're seeing. I, I do. I don't have any predictions per se. I do think the idea of IT, the idea of technology generally, is going to have a bigger part in everything in the finance world. I think, secondly, the worlds of various siloed businesses are merging and will continue to merge. So a media company will be in finance, and a financial company will be in retail. It's, it all becomes... Uh, Interdisciplinary. Absolutely, and it has to. And uh, anybody who isn't thinking about how to react to that is probably doing their organization disservice. Now, all that said, I am a believer that it will be quite some time before good judgment, experience, and uh, human capital is, uh, is, is not needed. So, I guess, what is your biggest takeaway about the market, which is finance, uh, after all those years of observation, analysis, or just about business? Like, uh, what do you think is the most important lesson you've learned? What, what do you think finance really is? In, in so, I think finance, when done right, is um, a form of business growth and productive for society in helping companies across a wide sweep of industries. Uh, grow, hire new people, uh, capital to do well, and then give back to the various stakeholders. Finance, when done narrowly and parochially, I think, frankly, has uh, earned a negative reputation. And I think that there's too many organizations, too many people that don't that that do it right, but uh, not enough. And um, you know, that said, you know, finance, one of the things we do better than anything as a country is venture capital, financing new businesses, helping them grow. The number of uh, patents in this country, 50% of the world supply. That all somehow is related to, to the financial community. Got you. I, I guess we talked a lot about the finance and business part of Center View, but what really fascinates me is sort of the political component of it, is that uh, in the Center View team, uh, in addition to all the highly experienced partners work on banking, there are also a lot of senior advisors like former Secretary of Treasury Bob Rubin, former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, like, who have led tremendous careers in, in public service. And then they bring in those decades of expertise into this interview. So uh, how do we kind of see the connection between public service, their political expertise, and, and what Centerview is doing here? So first of all, it starts with what is Centerview? It solves problems. <laughs> who has had more experience solving problems on a world stage than a Bob Rubin or Rahm Emanuel. Big point one. Big point two, uh, I think when you are considering problems, 
for any company, any government, anywhere in the world, the problems today are not just economic, they're not just political, they're not just commercial, they're everything. So when you think about a trade issue, obviously very much at the fore of the country, how does that impact a company? When you think about uh, financial policy of various central banks, how does that impact a company? How does that impact an industry? The idea of, of problem solving generally for companies, most the big big companies are as, as the biggest companies are as big as a small European country. Their issues are just manifold across all uh, things that affect us day in day out. So a Bob Rubin who's seen every issue from all sides brings a natural experience. Uh, I guess in addition to that component, you personally are also quite heavily involved in Democratic Party politics. You were especially known for being a very prominent supporter of John Kerry, yeah, well, yeah. and, and, and also you hosted President Obama for fundraiser events. Um, so I guess what, what motivated you to, to get involved in, in, in these issues? So always been important to me to think about how to give back. I think it's important to anybody who graduates from Princeton. There's a reason it's in the university's motto, service. And um, I've always been intrigued by policymaking and how to use policy to the good of everyone, as many people as possible, how to have uh, a society with broad-based growth. And if you've done well or you've been fortunate, which most of us have been, and we start out in a place of fortune simply being at, at a Princeton, uh, thinking beyond uh, your day job, thinking just beyond narrow terms, it ought to be part of the ethos. You ought to do it. And at Center View, we encourage it strongly. And I find that I just get a ton of satisfaction being involved in the kind of democratic policy politics arena and getting really involved and getting involved beyond that with nonprofits. Uh, all this is important. Everyone has a uh, desire to serve, a uh, desire to give back. And it's up to people who have been doing this for a while to lead the way, show the example of how to make that happen. Uh, so you were just saying that you derive a lot of satisfaction oh, sure. as you as you serve, but isn't there also tons of frustration when when you see uh, some of the issues in our in our world today? So so I'm very curious to hear whether you are optimist or pessimist. total optimist. I mean, I mean, I, I think it's oh, very no. hard for total <laughs> optimist. <laughs> Tucker, what I would tell you is this: um, I like anyone wish we were attacking truly. Uh, catastrophic potential problems with more speed, more money, uh, more urgency. The fact is this country has always gone through various cycles. We always end up uh, at a better place. Seeing a lot of people in their 20s and seeing how motivated and talented and uh, service-oriented they are, I have no doubt that if you ask me this question 10, 15, 20 years from now, you look back and say, of course we got to a better place. And if you look at issues that get solved, even this week, climate, everybody focused on climate. The idea that millions of people from schools around the world decide it's important enough to take a day off of school and uh, show their energy, show their voice against the issue, you, you have to have confidence. But I guess 
one could certainly adopt a more pessimistic view. Okay, as, as now I've given you the long-term I would love to optimism, <laughs> the short-term pessimism. Clearly, we have a uh, political apparatus which is as divided as ever. Yeah. Uh, Civic connectedness between absolutely. people. Absolutely. And do I believe that it is incumbent upon us and we do best as a society when we can listen to those with different viewpoints, figure out, uh, had a drive to a common solution? Absolutely. Do I think it is important when you have public officials who uh, look at their jobs as trying to get something done, uh, help their constituents? Of course I do. And do I see the sclerosis that goes on in, in the uh, political arena today? Sure, we all see it. But we've had it before. Uh, I happen to be optimistic that we will Find it again. I mean, I, uh, just as one example, as part of a group back in November of 18, helping uh, strong Democratic first-time freshman candidates uh, in, in uh, their elections, the 42 can candidates who became uh, members of the House, as earnest, as energetic, as thoughtful, as talented a group as I've come across anywhere. I see them. And I know. We You're more optimistic. optimistic. Absolutely. Got you. Uh, I, th I think we're currently, since we're talking about Democratic Party more, more specifically, I guess, uh, I guess we're seeing a shift towards the left within the Democratic Party, right? Given uh, we're seeing the, uh, there's a lot of, people even call it populism or however you call it. And I guess we're seeing significantly more grassroots movements, sort of this bottom-up demand, whether it's coming to climate change or inequality uh, or, or various issues across the country. So uh, do you like where this direction is headed? Do you think a more bottoms-up um, sure. The solution is the way to go. I think that it starts with where the voice of most Americans are. And I think the voice of most Americans has a level of absolutely justified frustration. Uh, frustration with, to your point earlier, major issues not being tackled, issues of income inequality, issues of climate, issues of education. And I think you're getting what's bubbling up is a sense of enough is enough. We need leaders who will actually take our concerns, put them into action with good policy. And I think it's left, less, less about left versus right and more about leaders who really want to push forward uh, and address these issues. And I think if you finally, most issues people will agree on the need for uh, a good outcome the question is how you get there. But I think anyone who, you know, anybody in America, 30 million people will tell you, yeah, income inequality is an issue. And the question is, how do you address it? So, so as you view those issues and analyze them and observed politics throughout those past couple of decades, has your sort of end goal or vision for globalization or liberalism sort of changed? Because I guess a lot of, there's a lot of voices uh, in academia or even politics right now saying maybe there needs to be some revision to capitalism or the sort of liberal global order that we kind of thought about before. Well, there's two issues, right. two very separate issues. Yeah. One yeah. is the issue of capitalism. The other is the issue of a global order versus more national yeah. local order. I think too many issues today absolutely are global. You can't not have a global order and attack climate change. Yeah. You can't not have a global order that figures out how to help underdeveloped countries have economic opportunity for the people. 
you have to. You can't have a global order dealing with issues of technology, internet. So I am as uh, much a believer as ever that big global problems require big global solutions. Now, within that, do I think you absolutely have to pay close attention to those at home who need help most? Of course I do. But I think that you can figure out the right balance. And then the question becomes capitalism. I don't even like the word capitalism. What I like is the idea of a society producing uh, enough opportunity for its citizens to uh, have a good chance in life to get ahead. And I think most people, if given a chance, take advantage of it. We don't give nearly enough people in this country that chance. So when you think about uh, how we develop a better economic model to address that, we must. Do I think that the country's basic framework of capital, your word capitalism, uh, works? Sure, I do. Do I think it needs adjustments? Of course. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, you probably won't answer this very directly, but do you have any thoughts on the race so far for, for the for the? Oh, I'll answer directly. I think we actually have a really good field. <laughs> I really, really? do. I do. Really? And I think you're going to see whomever the candidate ends up being, she or he will uh, capture the energy and the imagination of a big part of the country and uh, end up uh, looking uh, strong and having a good voice for what this country needs. Okay, that, make, that makes sense. And, and I, I, I'm very curious about the relationship between Wall Street financial firms and, and politics because uh, I remember interviewing former New York Fed President Bill Dudley, and, and he said during our interview, he says that it's very rare to find people on Wall Street who can understand what the policymakers are, are saying and, and vice versa. And, and uh, how do you sort and of— it's absolutely valid. You know, how Bill's do you, absolutely right about that. So um, first of all, you have to have a deep curiosity in policy generally. If you work in the financial industry— and um, don't have the curiosity, chances you're not going to have a, a good sense of those levers. Likewise, if you're in the policy world and you don't have a good sense of the practical implications of what your policies will do, uh, you're also deficient in your skill set. So I think Bill's right when he said there's not a big group of people who actually have enough interest in both worlds. It happens that uh, our current Fed chair, Loyal Princetonian Jay Powell, yeah. Uh, is somebody that has that experience. He's been in the private sector, done great things. He's been in the public sector, done great things. He has a very good sense of how his policies and what what they enact the impact broadly across across an economy. But um, I also will tell you, it takes. It's not just about policy; it's about temperament. And you have to understand when you're involved with someone else's world than what your day job is day to day. There's always going to be a different temperament, a different cadence, a different pace. And uh, you have to be intuit intuitive enough and patient enough to appreciate that and then operate within that framework. So, so why do you think that the relationship between Wall Street and politics has always been portrayed with such a negative sense of connotation, I guess, when people think of it? Um, you know, so, so what is that relationship actually like from your perspective? And how do we sort of make sure that the public get a more, more accurate image? Right. So what I would say is this. First of all, Geographically, most firms aren't on Wall Street anymore. They're in Midtown, <laughs> whatever. But uh, there's plenty of people in the financial community who care very deeply about matters facing this country in all spheres. 
And there's plenty of people in the financial industry who take that deep concern and care and uh, develop strong relationships with people in the policy world to try to make an impact. And the relationship is, frankly, um, much better than I think the public portrayal. The public portrayal says there's one that is a very separate group, Wall Street, very separate group, policymakers, the two should never meet. Like anything, much more nuanced than that. But um, I think policymakers make a valid argument that uh, Wall Street, where there are many people who have been successful, have a responsibility to do more and uh, shared sacrifice leads to shared prosperity. So how, how do you think of, I guess, the current administration's policies, uh, so for economic policy, I mean, I mean, the stock market's obviously doing pretty well. Uh, I think a lot of finance firms like the tax cuts, like the sort of the business environment right now. But I guess, personally, you might not really agree with a lot of the policies that this current Republican administration have. So do, do you like the job they're doing right now? Uh, if, if, if you do, how do you sort of reconcile that tension with sort of the... Uh, your support for the Democratic Party that you might not agree some of the part that some of the parts that they don't. Well, oh, I don't. Want. Yeah, no, I don't agree with with much of what's going on, frankly. Um, the tax cut for individuals, uh, I don't think was needed. Yeah. I think it uh, did nothing but increase our deficit. And if you look at our deficit this year, it'll be seven eight percent of GDP, probably more than twice what's really sustainable. Uh, I don't think the investments that we need to make in infrastructure, the investments we need to make in uh, people, edu education, the investments we need to make in job training, uh, skills-based learning, has been at all uh, anywhere close to where it needs to be. And I don't think that the um, platform of certainty that the world needs generally to make pro-growth decisions is in any way uh, what we have today. So uh, that said, the private sector always, I think, does a great job in figuring out how to operate against a world of volatility. And even in terms of the issue of climate, which we talked about earlier, the fact is the private sector uh, is carrying the mantle right now. And if you look at the Paris Accords, the U.S. will meet its goals that we set out in Paris Accords. But why is that going to happen? Because of the private sector. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 before we wrap up the interview, I kind of want to come back to you uh, a little bit more. Like, what, what, for example, what do you think are some of the values and characteristics of, of yours that you think led to your success today? Oh, boy. Uh, you have uh, to ask uh, others that, I think. I think, uh, I think we ask very, very broad questions on this show. <laughs> That's good. So what I would say is this. Let's not, uh, for myself, who knows, when I, what I see in others, uh, hallmarks, discipline and focus, absolutely. Hard work, a given. Three, a willingness and ability to go beyond what you think you've been asked to do and figure out how to be an originator of things. Underpinning all this, high ethics, a must. You can't be in any job successful without it. Leadership skills. And a sense of, of joy several times a week about what you're doing. I didn't say every day. But several times a week, to be successful, the success has to be second. The day-to-day -day fulfillment has to be first. And I find most people who have been successful will tell you they're successful because that's a byproduct of, of them finding a role that they're kind of pretty good at and they like. 
so what would looking back what do you think is sort of the biggest failure you've experienced like was there ever a moment i mean there probably definitely will many failures yeah exactly that you just felt like wow i just want to throw the towel and this this is sort of it like i i would say not a moment where i want to throw the towel and i think like most of us we all have those moments but you kind of want to have resilience grit and say you know what uh lemons figure out make lemonade there have been times when um I have felt stifled. In any career, every several years, you will feel stifled. You will feel like you plateaued. So then it's up to you to say, okay, how do I go from this plateau I'm at right now to the next plateau that will make me feel energized again? And that, to me, is a period of discovery and and really uh, self-starting initiative. So when I've felt those moments of valleys, I can say, okay, what's up there? What's out there next? That uh, Let's me climb the next hill. And uh, therefore, I don't look at it as a failure, per se, as opposed to the current situation, not ideal. Great. How do I make it better? Uh, do, do you have a story of, I guess, the moment when you think you took on a huge risk or, or you re- really experienced something? I would love to just hear some yeah, of the Yeah, so the story, so. July 12, 2006, <laughs> when I yeah. left uh, pretty secure uh, job and uh, doing well with it and uh, deciding that I was going to jump off the cliff, so to speak, and have this moment of, okay, how do I even turn on the, the cell phone? How do I actually think about uh, starting an office? And it was scary. But, but I, I imagine it must be a very painful process, but filled with a lot of sort of sense of happiness and satisfaction in the, in the yeah, I think that you're going so fast in the early days of something that you don't actually think about the pain. You don't think about the happiness. You just go, and you try to make very quick, nimble decisions and judgments and figure out that if seven of them are right out of ten, you've done a pretty good job. Uh, I, I will say this. I did learn any time I feel stuck or, uh, as you used you know, the word, I guess, nervous, scared, just push forward. Just push forward action. I, I guess everyone must regard you as a very highly successful person, highly respected person in any regard. But do you personally feel like there's any regret or something that you've always hoped to achieve but you, but you really haven't? Like It's a journey. <laughs> I'm not done. And uh, I don't look at any destination as saying it's a regret or it's a success. I like the idea that uh, I get fulfillment of what I, as a, in terms of what I do day to day. And uh, you'll ask me the question in 10, 15, 20 years. I'll give you the answer. So you would, you would say that you are certainly making progress as, as you go through, and certainly Centerview has made progress and our world has made progress, that you have this more optimistic, forward-looking viewpoint. I do. I do. I think that uh, we figure out how to feel our way to the right answer. I know in the current environment, it feels like that's difficult. It feels like we're going down lots of blind alleys. But I just see too much energy, too much enthusiasm by particularly those in their teens, 20s, early 30s, to not be very optimistic. I mean, I, I so I personally worked at the private equity this past summer. I did like TMT investing, and it was really, really exciting. It was tough hours, but but I loved the work. But sometimes I, I struggle to find, I guess, sense of meaning when, 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 I, when I do some of the stuff. That's that a great question. So, so how do you— So yeah. sense of meaning, first of all, I think anyone needs to think about meaning across the broad portfolio of their lives, from 
what they do during their working hours to where they decide to volunteer, where they decide to get involved philanthropically, politically, and of course where they get involved with their friends and family. And I think meaning can happen in small ways and big ways. And um, being involved with a a small philanthropic organization ought to give you meaning on a day-to-day basis in your job. If you think what you're doing is somehow adding to the overall good, you ought to feel fulfilled. If you give the right advice, for example, to a company, and because of that, that company does better, and because it's doing better, it's hiring more people, you had a modest impact in that. So you're not you to feel good. Don't hesitate to take the small wins and, and feel happy about these things and build upon Absolutely. them. Absolutely. And um, I think anybody who isn't feeling fulfilled, to me, it's very simple. They're not doing enough. Totally makes sense. Awesome. And so uh, what would be one contrarian view that you hold that many others don't agree with? I, I'm very interested in hearing your current thinking about something right now. So uh, great question. I would say that um, the role of a university, since we're sitting here, will be as important and as universally regarded across this country as one of our best uh, things we do in the country that you can imagine. And I know that the kind of the higher the le- higher education generally is kind of under the spotlight, under the gun. I'm making a big bet that uh, the more everyone sees and understands what these schools are doing for big groups of populations, they will have their moment again and have the respect they deserve. Awesome. Uh, so the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I always ask this question at the very uh, end of our show. Uh, what's the punchline here for, for Center View, for banking, for finance, for our society, uh, anything? To be continued. <laughs> to be continued. And I mean that. And, what and I'm I, saying is it's, there, the, the punchline should be always thinking about the next thing while you're enjoying the current thing. So I think this is sort of a, a Kantian sort of philosophy there. You know, we're always striving for something. It's about the process that matters. And as we, but you have to enjoy the process. And you have to enjoy the process. And if it's even if it's suffering or struggle, you, you love it and you thrive off that. Sure. Awesome. Th- thank you so much for this positive message and for joining us today, Mr. Afron. Thanks for having me. And, and hope that our dialogue can, can be continued in the future when you come back on campus. I look forward to it. Thank, thank you. you so much. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Um, uh, please visit us on policypunchline.com and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and all those platforms. Uh, rate and review us. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.